You're listening to sermon audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have a Bible, if you turn to 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, as we deal today with the Advent topic of joy. Uh, author Joseph Campbell wrote, Participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. We cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. And there's some great truth in what he, what he wrote there. We, we really don't have it within us to be able to cure the world of all of its sorrows, mostly because the world we live in now is a world that is sin-stricken. It's a world that is uh, oftentimes dominated by persons who yield to their sinful desires more so than the righteous desires of God. And so for every good work that is done, for every positive uh, advancement that is made in, in, in the Christian faith and kingdom in this world, there are forces that work in opposition of that. So we, we cannot truly, until Jesus returns, find a world that is void of sorrow. But we can, particularly as Christians, choose to, to live in joy. And really, as we've worked through the last few weeks, all of these topics, hope and peace and love and joy, all these things are a choice. We choose to live in those. We choose to live in the truth of what we know about those things, or we choose opposite. And, and for our, our, our programs, uh, for our, our times this week on Sunday mornings, uh, our, uh, the, uh, the theme has been Christmas presence, of being the presence of those things. And for you and I to be the presence of hope and peace and love and joy, again, we have to choose to do that. We have to choose to walk in such a way that we are that presence in people's lives. So today, let's talk about joy. And let's talk about joy reading from 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. We're actually going to start with verses 6 and 7 for our first segment here today. Peter writes, verse 6, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So our first point, our first segment today in the bulletin there, you've got them, is this, that there is future joy through trials. We have future joy through trials. Joy, Christian joy specifically, is a, is a state of being. It is a condition that we choose to live in. And he writes for us to be truly glad. I know some of your translations say, uh, in this or in, in all of this, you greatly rejoice. And we'll get back to what the in this or in all this means in just a minute. But it, it really is a word that describes two things. It describes joy um, that is unbelievable inexpressible, which is what he'll say in the scriptures here in just a few moments, in just a few moments here in the message. Um, It's a joy that we sing about or that the team led us through the opening song that is unspeakable. And it is a joy that is habitual. Again, meaning that we choose to make it a habit in our lives. 
of choosing joy. And so how do we enter into such a condition? Again, some of your translations say in this or in all this, you greatly rejoice. Uh, Here in the New Living, it just says, so be truly glad. But what is it pointing back to? It's pointing back to verses 3 through 5 here in 1 Peter 1. If you've got your Bible open, I just want you to follow along with me as I read those so we can see the foundation that Peter's building off of. Verse 3, he says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So we enter into the condition or the state of being of full Christian joy by being reminded from those verses that the joy that awaits us is secure. That the joy that awaits us is being kept for us. That it, it will not change. It will not decay. It, it will not go anywhere. It's not going to be stripped from us. And so because of that, we are able to endure trials in our lives. This is a very common uh, sort of writing tactic from Peter. You may remember from last week in 2 Peter 1.5, he said, in view of all this, and then began to talk about how we live in peace, right, or, or live in love. And so he, there he was pointing back to verses that he had talked about previously. This is a very common understanding of the way Peter writes. Because of these things, be glad. And so look at how he says it. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead. There's wonderful joy ahead pointing to what he's revealed to us in verses 3 through 5. Even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Now, some translations word it this way in English. If need be that you endure trials or if necessary that you endure trials. And honestly, that's, that's sort of misleading for us. Because when you and I see that little English word if, right, we tend to think of it as it may or may not happen. If we get enough snow Thursday and Friday, we may have a white Christmas, right? There's still lots of uncertainty about that, and I'll talk about that at the close of service. But here, what Peter is communicating to us is not if as it's a possibility, but if as it's a necessity. That it is a necessity in the Christian life that we endure trials. Let me give you an example of where the same Greek language is used in a little bit different understanding from the English. In Matthew 16, Jesus begins to talk in Matthew 16, 20 to the disciples. And he begins to explain to them that he has to go to Jerusalem and that he has to basically be offered up to the cross, to the death, and so on and so forth. And he uses this phrase, Matthew uses this phrase, it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. It's the same Greek language behind that that is behind what Peter says here, if you must endure any trials, or in the New Living Translation, even though you must endure many trials. This is important teaching for the church. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on 1 Peter, says this, We must keep in mind all God plans and performs here on earth is preparation for what he has in store for us in heaven. He is preparing us for life and service yet to come, and trials are some of God's tools and textbooks in the school of Christian experience. 
Trials have a necessity in the Christian life. And again, the way Peter puts it here is this. Be joyful. Have, be truly glad. Have lots of joy. There's joy that's ahead even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Again, this, this is just crucial teaching, folks. Uh, I, I know most of you here pretty well, have had conversations with most of you here uh, outside of a Sunday morning conversation or so, and I would dare say that, that most of you, if not all of you, would, if, if somebody were to come and preach a prosperity gospel, meaning health, wealth, and, and great material things, and nobody's ever to be sick, you would completely go against that in a moment. But you don't have to embrace health and wealth prosperity gospel to also have in your mind the condition of, well, being a Christian means I'm exempt from trials. And we, we've, we've got to move past that as a people. We've got to move past that as God's people. Because God has intent for trials. Nowhere in any of these pages of Scripture are God's people exempt from trials. Nowhere in any of these pages of Scripture are God's people exempt from suffering. I would say just the opposite. In these pages of Scripture, it's well pointed out that God's people should expect it. You should expect it from a, a wide range of causes... You should expect it from a, a myriad of different opportunities, but that God has in mind for his people times of trial. And so we, we look at that and we think to ourselves, then what does this mean? Well, look at verse 7. This is the way Peter follows up. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. What is the necessity of trials in the Christian life? It is to show that your faith is real. Not only to yourself, but to others. In the scriptures, really, trials are sort of viewed in three different ways. There, is, there are trials that are uh, divine or godly trials uh, that are beneficial in purpose and effect. So, for example, in Acts 20, 19, Paul says this, I have done the Lord's work humbly with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. He says, the trials that I've been undergoing have been part of a divine plan of God working in my life. Uh, Charity and Annie read, read from James chapter 1. When you, can, when you have trials, consider it joy. Because in trials, your endurance gets built up. So there are trials that have a divine or a godly aspect to them. There are trials uh, that have a wrongdoing or a temptation aspect to them. For example, uh, Paul uses the word trials in this sense in 1 Timothy 6, 9, when he, when he encourages Timothy as a preacher, people who long to be rich fall into temptation, that is trials, and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires. So there, it's a trial that does not have necessarily a godly purpose, but has the purpose of the enemy. And then thirdly, it's a, there are trials that exist in the scripture that are just simply by mankind rebelling against God. In Hebrews 3.8, the writer of Hebrews is actually quoting from Psalm 95 where he says this. The Lord says, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me or tried me in the wilderness. So generally three understandings of trials in the scripture. One, that trials uh, have, have a godly sense to them, that they have a purpose. Two, that it's a sense of the enemy where it's meant to, to trip us up or temptation. And then three, sometimes trials that result just because of our own rebellion. So how do we know what, which one of these Peter is referring to? Well, I, I think that we know from what he says in verse 7. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. 
Because the enemy does not put before us temptations and trials to strengthen our faith. He, he does not come to us with, with trials and temptations in order for us to emerge stronger and victorious. He comes to us with those things in order to weaken us. Same thing for uh, mankind and their rebellion against God. Men who stand against God do not do so in such an effort to encourage those around them to follow God more. So Peter's very words here give us the understanding that the trials that he's talking about here have a very godly, divine perspective and purpose. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. Now you still may ask, how do I know the trials in my life? Which of the three they come from? Well, I'm going to give you two answers to that today. Number one is this, that in every trial, in every test, in every struggle, however, whatever word you want to use for it, in every one, we all must come to one solid understanding. That is this, that they all, in some sense, are from God. And let me explain this. I'm not suggesting that God is, is sitting and, and poking and prodding and doing this. And, but understand, let's take the story of Job, for example, right? The, the trials, the temptations, the, the, the pain came from what the enemy did, correct? But it came from the enemy who was being held back by God. Oh, you, you can't harm Job, but you can take everything he's got. God not doing the work to Job, but God allowing or permitting what happened in Job's life. Satan comes back later. Well, I took everything he's got. He still he praises you. Okay, well, you can't take his life, but you can begin to harm him a little bit. The understanding that all trials have a God perspective to them is critical for us. Because it helps us actually to understand that even in the midst of this, even if it's a very troubling thing, God is allowing it for a purpose or a reason. And, and I'll just have to be honest with you as a pastor. You may not know the fullness of that purpose or reason this side of eternity. I know, I know we'd like instead to have all the answers and to have everything tied up with a nice, neat little bow. You may not. But we trust in the fact that God has a hand in it. And I think secondly, we can discern it in this way. What is our reaction to the trial? If our reaction to the trial is that we, we are driven to a deeper trust in God, we are driven to a deeper faith in Him, we are driven to trust Him more and more and, our, and realize He is our provision and He is our joy and He is our hope and our peace and so on and so forth, then I think we can fully understand that that trial has a divine godly purpose. But if it takes us the other direction, if it moves us in, a, in an opposite way from all of those things, then we can begin to suggest at that point perhaps that that trial is actually coming from our enemy. But even in that, I want you to hear this. Even in that, you still get to write the ending. You, you may not the full, know the full origin story. There's nothing in the story of Job that indicates that he knew that this conversation between God and Satan was going on. There's nothing in the Job story that he knew that God was permitting Satan to have at him in these ways. And you may not know the origin story. You may not know the, be the beginning of any trial in your life. But you can write the ending in how you react and how you live and how you choose joy through those trials. 
And so look at what he says, continuing on verse 7, what the result is. He says these trials will show your faith is genuine. It, you, your faith is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than, than mere gold. Uh, just a, a quick point to that. When fire tests gold or, or silver or any precious metal, what happens is the fire has the impurities of that metal rise to the surface and then it's skimmed off. It's called the dross, the D-R-O-S-S. It's called the dross. And those impurities are skimmed off until such a time that that metal is found in its most purest state. And so God allows trials in our lives so that the impurities can be risen to the surface and be skimmed off so that our faith can be proved genuine. And then look how he says it. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Now, only the New Living Translation words it this way. It will bring you much praise and glory. Other translations say things like uh, it, it may be found unto praise and glory or it may result in praise and glory. But understand the reason the New Living puts it this way is the correlation here in verse 7 is between that phrase, your faith and praise and glory. In other words, the teaching of the, of the scripture here from Peter is that when your faith is found to be genuine through trials and when your faith is found to last through trials, that on the day when Christ is revealed, whether it's by your death and you're entering into his presence or whether it's by his return and you still being alive and being caught up to him, on that day you will receive praise and glory for your faith lasting through trials. That seems really uncomfortable, doesn't it? That we would receive praise and glory. But, but let me point you to a couple other places in Scripture. In Romans chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, this is what Paul writes. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing evil, what is the Jew, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all or to all who do good for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. So Paul there says there will be glory and honor and peace from God to those who do good. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. He will bring the darkest secrets to light and will reveal the private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. When Jesus tells the story of the servants, right? And the, the master goes away and he comes back. It's a, it's a parable. It's a parable to teach us about how the kingdom works. It's a parable to teach us about how Jesus returns. And what does he say at the end of the parable to the servant who's remained faithful? Well done, my good and faithful servant. It is not uncomfortable to think that God is going to give you praise and glory. Now, ultimately... Every praise and glory we may receive gets kicked back to the Lord. Any, any crown that we may receive gets laid back at the feet of Jesus Christ. But God has an intent for when you enter his eternity. Again, whether it's through your death or whether it's through his return, God has an intent from the scriptures to say to you, well done, praise, glory, and honor for doing what you should have done done and so there's a future joy that comes through our trials but then secondly 
There's a present joy we can have right now through our trust. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, you love him even though you've never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So point two, we have present joy through trust. There's a future joy to be had, and because we know that future joy is there and being kept, that inheritance is being kept, it's being protected, secured, we can have all kinds of joy going through our trials, knowing that there's a future joy that's to come. But we need present joy, right? And present joy in trials comes through trust. You love him, he says in verse 8, even though you've never seen him. I, I have to believe that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he was writing this, had in his mind what is recorded in John's gospel in John chapter 20, when Thomas says, until I see the Lord and until I see the, the scars and until I'm able to put my hand in his side of where the spear was, I won't believe. And so Jesus gives him that opportunity and Thomas says, Lord, my God, my Savior. And Jesus' response is, blessed are you because you see and believe. More blessed are those who have not seen or will not see and believe. I have to believe that Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is recalling this. You love him even though you've never seen him. And though you do not see him, he says in verse 8, now you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. We have joy in the midst of our trials presently because we trust in Jesus. The word trust there in, in 1 Peter is the same Greek word that sometimes is translated belief or believe. It's the same Greek word that sometimes is translated faith. It all runs together. It's a joy that's built upon the trust, the belief, the faith that Jesus is who he is, that he did what, he'd, what he said he did, that he's done for us what he said he was going to do, and that becomes the foundation of our faith. Joy by any other criteria will fail. If you are looking for human beings to be your joy, good luck. If you are looking for earthly circumstances to be your joy, have at it. The only joy that sustains us, the only way we can be the presence of joy with people is to trust him. And Peter says, even though we do not see him. It all goes back to the beginning of verse 7, that these trials will show that your faith is genuine. When you go through a trial and your faith is genuine, what you are displaying is that even though you do not see him, you trust him. And because of that, you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. Now, that does not mean that we should not try to express it. It does not mean that we should not try to share it with others. It just means that when we look to the English language for our circumstances in our context, there really are not words to describe it. That when you describe this kind of joy that you have, even in the midst of trials, you, you struggle, you stammer, you have a hard time really communicating it to somebody because it is so glorious and it is so inexpressible. And I want to, I want to share with you this. Peter is not, nor do I think any other New Testament writer is doing this. He's not suggesting we rejoice at going through trials. Because the reality of it is trials are hard, aren't they? You know, your trial may not seem as severe as somebody else's, but to you, it's a tough one. 
He's not suggesting that we rejoice at them, but that we rejoice through them. That we rejoice while we're in the midst of them. And that we rejoice, we're able to do that because we understand, again, that there's a joy that is ahead that is far greater than anything on earth that comes true. There's a joy that is to come for the believer that is so inexpressible. Like I, I, you know, we, I'm diverting here. We have, we have all of these sort of ideas of heaven, right? And most of them come from movies and books and sometimes literature and art. And, you know, and we just, it's, it's fluffy clouds and it's angels with wings and we're playing harps and we're strumming and it's, no. <laughs> Go immerse yourself in Revelation. Not, not, not trying to fulfill or understand all the prophecies, not trying to figure out who's Babylon and what the mark of the beast is. Just go immerse yourself in the sections of Revelation where it describes the heavenly throne. And find me somebody playing a harp. Find me somebody just sitting on a cloud with their knees bent, just strolling through eternity. It is full, unadulterated worship. It is joy that is inexpressible. It is every human being and every created being, angelics and otherwise, who are before the throne of God, who are continually for all of eternity singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. This is the joy that he says is before us. It's, it's ahead of us. It's secured. It's being kept for us. And because that is the true joy, we rejoice now because we trust in him. And as he closes up in verse 9, he says this. Though you do not see him, you love him. You trust him and rejoice with a glorious and expressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Don't, don't read that and think that the salvation of your souls is something to come. Scripture makes it clear to all who have trusted in Jesus, your soul is already secured. But it's the full payment of that. It's the full payment of the inheritance. It's the full offering of the kingdom that comes to us. We already have a priceless inheritance. Jesus says in the Gospels, those who believe in him have already passed from death unto life. And it's because you already possess that. It's because you already have that by faith that that joy is secure to you for he is keeping it for you. Can poverty overcome the salvation that's secured for you by Christ? No. Can cancer steal the promise of God? No. Can the persecution by mankind nullify the redemptive plan of God? No. To all these things and every other example that you can think of, the answer is a resounding no. And because of that, you have joy. We get so wrapped up in these 60, 70, 80 years that we have. And we fail to think about them in the scope of all of eternity. The scriptures are clear. Our Christian lives, they're not defined by trials, but we have trials. We're not exempt from trials. But our lives are marked by the joy that we carry through the trials. 
If there's no purpose to trials, then uh, our joy is meaningless. If there's no purpose to trials, then our pain is for nothing. If there's no purpose to trials, then we can actually begin to entertain the thought of God. But those are the thoughts of the nihilist who says life has no meaning. And those are the thoughts of the existentialist who says there's no God to provide meaning. But the Christian thoughts are not these thoughts. The Christian thoughts are to understand that there's purpose and necessity, and if we allow it, part of that purpose is that God might find our faith to be genuine and might increase our joy. Our theme has been the presence of joy, and I say this to you as we begin to close. One of the greatest things that you and I can think of when it comes to trials in our lives is to be reminded that our trials are not for us only. God may allow you a trial. He may permit a trial. He may even decree a trial in your life, in my life. And it's partly for you, for your faith to be shown and your faith to be shown genuine and for you to to increase in an expressible or an inexpressible, unbelievable joy. But when we talk about being the presence of joy, what we're talking about is that in the midst of those trials, we then become the presence of joy for other people. They see how we're living they see how we're going through those times and our lives become that testimony of joy preachers uh, will tell you if they're honest with you that we stand up here and preach every Sunday and I don't know how many hours every preacher uses through the week I know that myself um, about 12 to 15 hours of my week is devoted to study and research and prep for giving you 35, 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. But every preacher I know struggles with this one thing. How do I wrap it up? How do I close it? Because the reality is you probably remember what we say at the end more so than you remember what we said at minute one, right? And so every week, how do I close it? How do I wrap it up? How do I know that they'll get this? Well, today, I'm not going to wrap it up for you. Today, I'm going to let one of our own wrap it up for you. Therefore, so that I would not become arrogant, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to trouble me, so that I would not become arrogant. I asked the Lord three times about this, that it would depart from me. But he said to me, my grace is enough for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I am content with weakness, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So a lot of people have mentioned my attitude while going through cancer and... um, Ask me how I can still be so happy and I want to be clear I'm not always happy <laughs> because this is definitely not fun but I have always had joy because I know that going through this that God can use it for my good and the good of the kingdom and to bring him glory and that is knowing that the Lord can use you is a very humbling experience as well. I had a realization, thankfully before my diagnosis, um, it was really just that God didn't owe me anything. 
I'm not better than anybody else. So I don't deserve an easy life or an easy time of things. I shouldn't be given special treatment or some kind of a pass, I guess. Um, I'm not owed that uh, just for following, uh, following Jesus. I also thought about it and I've already really been given well over my fair share of blessings. I have so many things that other people don't have. I have, I was born into a wonderful family. Um, I've got my church family as well. I've been given a service dog that really helps me and people who help me raise money for that service dog. Um, I just have been surrounded with so many blessings and like I don't have to worry about going hungry because I know I have a whole line of people that would more than happily feed me if I ever needed that. I don't have to worry about ever being homeless. I have so much support and so many things so why do I deserve more than what I've already been given? I never get one more good thing in my life that would be fine and good because look at what I already have. Like, I think it's easy to get wrapped up in the things going wrong and uh, forget about the things that we have on a daily basis. While going through this, I've been giving so many opportunities to share my faith and, and witness to others that I just hadn't been given before. And I think too, uh, and I think Steve mentioned this uh, a while back in a sermon, about how if we, when we go through trials and tribulations, if we deal with it the exact same way as people do without the Lord, then what's the point? It's been brought up so much more often than normal about, and just my attitude about going through all of this and uh, going through hard things and hard times. And I have had people that I know, like they, they've told me, they said, I don't pray, but I prayed for you last night. And that is huge. <laughs> and so if one person can have their life changed through all of this, be going through all this, then it's worth it. Susanna texted me back early part of November and she said, I, I think I, I need to share I said, I can't imagine a better week for you to share than the week of joy. You're here today. There's only one way that you can possess that kind of joy, and it's through Jesus Christ. If you do not know him, he stands at the ready to receive you. If you do not know him, he stands at the ready to forgive you. If you do not know him, he stands at the ready to change your life, to bring meaning to every blessing and every trial. And that's the very first place you begin to have your life demonstrate the kind of joy that Suzanne just demonstrated. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pvcfrankfurt at gmail.com.